this is the Roaring of the Podcast for the 10th of November. And uh, we have a guest today, and we still also have a trustworthy, always there, never late, Dave. Hi, Dave. Hello. Come on, say something good. Uh, something good? <laughs> you see people that I have to work with here. This, this is... <laughs> Hey, I did exactly what you asked. <laughs> yes. Fortunately, we have Keith coming back for a second appearance, uh, following on from last week's episode on effective ML. We were talking a bit more about how to organize and retain an effective team and make machine learning successful in your organization. So I guess without much further ado, let's uh, pass it on to Keith. Let's do it. And welcome back, Keith. Good to uh, good to have you here for for part two. Thank you very much. I've been enjoying the conversation. So we we've kind of talked around the the tech mostly for the first half of uh, or the first episode of uh, around this topic, but now we're going to talk about the 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 wetter, squishier side of uh, of machine learning, and that's the the people's brains behind. Uh, behind the, the creation and the, the teams that, you know, people often think, well, just machine learning is just, it's all, it's all algorithms, it's all models, it's all data. But uh, of course you need people to actually start wrangling that stuff together. So I suppose the, the first question we could start off with is what, what do you think makes uh, an effective, an effective team, an effective ML team? Well, you're uh, you're right that the people stuff gets a little bit uh, is uh, is really the tricky part, and I think it's not just the people on the team itself, mm. although that's certainly important, and, and we should talk about that. But I think it's worth pausing for just a second to reflect on the fact that you have all the other people in the organization too that aren't on the data science team. So the way that I'll often mm -hmm. explain it is that the most common reason that projects fail is organizational resistance. So one of yeah. the first things the data science team has to focus on is have they just been kind of secretly dreaming up, dreaming up this wonderful thing and they present their gift to the organization without asking anybody if they wanted it. Um, that, that will kill, that will kill a project right there. Yeah. So by implication, somebody on that team, probably the team lead in particular has to make sure that they are being an ambassador of, of uh, in a sense, to the rest of the organization. Otherwise, otherwise, the models won't be embraced and they won't be deployed. Yeah, that that um, it's funny how often that I, that concept around exec exec sponsorship is often the way it gets described, or exec buy in, or exec support. The number of kind of projects that can get budget. But actually, you know, they can go and hire people. They can go and spin a load of cycles on on doing something, but not have the actual buy-in from senior execs that anything that they do is actually going to go over anywhere is disturbing on one front. But I've seen it. I don't know why, but I feel like I've seen it more in the ML and and kind of an AI space than I've seen it in any other area. Yeah, you know, um, I don't want to be overly dramatic or pessimistic, but gosh, if someone's starting a project and they don't even have 
management support from the line of business or you know whoever's writing the check is one way to put it if they don't have that buy-in then it's hopeless <laughs> yeah i i was even thinking broader than that uh, for instance do you think if you asked someone that runs the call center if they would describe the experience of inbound customer service the same way the people on the phones do almost mm. certainly not right mm -hmm. yeah. so who is the model actually going to impact uh the director of the call center is going to be rewarded if the <laughs> you know if the number of drop calls decreases or if the average satisfaction mm. goes up or whatever the goal of the project was you know but who's actually impacted the people that are actually impacted by the creation of this model are the people on the phones not the director of the call center so mm. you have to get their buy-in as well and most modelers never meet them at any point or they only meet them at the end sometimes there's some kind of project rollout meeting mm -hmm. where the same slide deck that was presented to senior management is recycled you know for this other audience but i insist on interacting with them at some minimal i, I mean you know obviously i'm not gonna be able to spend a week going through call center training you know on a model but i i, I need to have some contact with the with the actual end users of the model if I think the model is going to have any hope of success. So, so I need their buy-in as well, not only management buy-in, although I agree with you, I also need that. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that comes, I suppose the problem is that that comes with a whole set of other conditions of you know, what's, what's the impact to the organization of if this is successful, you know, does this mean that, um, you know, people performing a certain task could be, you know, does it mean those teams could potentially get downsized? Does it mean that, uh, you know, what's the, what's, what's the, the path for, for success for this and the impact on the rest of the organization? Often those two things are really, like really integrally wrapped up together. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, you know, you're, you're quite right that, that a very sensitive topic indeed might be this kind of future of work. Five years from now, are we going to have 20% or more than 20% fewer employees in the call center because of the dominoes that start to fall when this model is uh, is deployed? So those are scary topics, aren't they? But I think you've got to take them on because delaying the conversation is not a good thing. Uh, it's an uncomfortable, just expect it to be an uncomfortable conversation. You have to have it early on. So um, naturally, that I think has to be the team lead has to have that skill, you know, sometimes kind of called the, uh, the translator, um, role. Uh, a lot of times you hear people talking about that. I think the problem that people, uh, that a lot of organizations have getting back to your specific question about what is the composition of the team? Most people agree that having somebody like this translator skill makes sense. People usually don't shoot that down. They just agree with that. But on many data science teams, the head of the data science team is not themselves a data scientist because it could be a combined team, data science combined with BI or dashboarding or all these other things. So now you have a little bit of a problem because how is that person of a mixed skill set team like that going to ask act as the translator if they don't if they're not particularly comfortable with machine learning themselves. 
Yeah. And you know, what does what does that how does that translate into teams that struggle? Well, uh, the way that I find it manifesting itself quite often is that organizations will create a data science team. I mean, let's face it, in many organizations, the data science team is still less than five years old, you know, because it's still a growing, still a growing field. And you have these armies of, uh, you know, armies of young data scientists graduating out of these certificate programs and boot camps and, and master's degree programs that 10 years ago didn't exist, you know? So, so we're talking about a field that's growing. So you have this new team and what will happen is since the organization doesn't know how to utilize them in some cases, they want to be busy. No employee wants to have an empty calendar because then they, they just feel like they're going to be downsized or they're not going to be happy as well. They want to be able to prove that they're good at what they do. So they end up taking on projects that aren't really predictive analytics projects. So if you've got somebody who's running this mixed skill set team that themselves has a BI background, what will happen is they'll say, well, you know, we really don't have a model to, for you to work on at the moment. Do you mind helping out with this BI project? And then that data scientist who's just spent five years trying to get enough skill to get hired into this role um, doesn't want to be put on a BI project. Despite the value to the organization, it's tremendous. I'm not trying to diminish the value of BI. In fact, if anything, organizations are getting so hyped up on everything's going to be future, everything's going to be predicting that I think they're devaluing BI, which I think is a huge mistake. But nonetheless, somebody with a data science master's who's been working like crazy to get qualified and secure this job doesn't want to spend the first 12 months of their first data science career job working on BI projects after all this training that they've gone through. Yeah, and the the, from their perspective, the risk is that they get, I guess, pigeonholed into, into oh, but you're 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 that you're the BI person. Like we we need, you know, we need these forward thinking, advanced analytics and machine learning people. And like, but I am one of those people. I was just working on that one project that one time. Is is I guess their their sort of fear or their concern. It's it's not about the. Um, it's not about the the value to the business. They're thinking about their own personal brand within the organization and their concerns that, that about what what that means for them in the future. I'm guessing. Cer- certainly, and I don't think um, I don't think it's irrational. You know, they're trying to they're trying to build up their portfolio. So what you end up with is you end up with a, you know a lot of people on the data science side that have had five jobs in five years. I, mm. I doubt that either their organizations or they went in planning on that happening. But I have enough uh, data scientists that I'm connected to on LinkedIn that I see that pattern quite often. It's not a rare pattern. It's probably, gosh, I I would say 10, 20, 30% of data scientists maybe have a pattern like that where they're changing organizations almost annually. That that cannot be a good thing for them or for their organizations. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So what, what 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 do you think makes what what makes an effective team? So we've talked about the like the, the translator role, and we've talked about the the sort of the the folks ensuring that you've got this um, 
the buy-in across the organization and this mixture of, of skills. But what, what are some of the other things that you look or that you see happening in effective teams? Well, one, one more quick note on the leader of the team. Mm. If we're going to avoid the problem that we've been talking about, then, well, first of all, the leader of the team has to exist. <laughs> it's kind of a funny way to put it, probably. But, you know, so in other words, I, I think that you have to have somebody that understands data science who's running the data science team. And maybe that means that, the, you know, the team has to break off. And then I think the number one mission that that person has is to protect their team from what we've just described. So if they get a team assignment where nothing is being predicted, it sounds simple, but it's really the way that I'll explain it to management. Is I'll always say, what are you trying to predict with this project? And sometimes mm. you're not trying to predict anything. So, um, for instance, this might be a funny way to put it, but it's uh, as we're recording this, it's a it's a couple of weeks away from late tax filing in the in the U.S. So, you know, you can file either on April fifteenth or October fifteenth. So anyway, so taxes are always on my mind this time of year. And if you have, um, let's say you have, uh, it's uh, December thirty first. It's the last, uh, and you're on a calendar year. Uh, it's the last day of the year. Uh, do you have to, quote, predict what you owe for taxes that year? No, you don't have to predict anything. All the facts, all the facts are known. There's no confidence interval. There's no statistics or anything going on. Now, you have to calculate it. But think about that from a management point of view. Um, you can be a busy executive. You can be a sharp person reading all the business books, hanging out on LinkedIn, reading blog posts and so on. And I think a lot of executives, if you, um, if you were um, having a straightforward conversation with them, would admit mm. that the difference between what you do with machine learning and what you do with, let's say, RPA, robotic process, uh, you know, uh, uh, administration, is not always entirely clear. So, in other words, that notion that you have to calculate the taxes you owe, but there's nothing that you have to predict. It sounds like an obvious thing, but in each individual case study, I've had numerous conversations with executives where once you hit about the 15 minute mark in the conversation, you go, oh my gosh, we have this complicated calculation that we have to do, but there's nothing to predict here. And that's what that yeah. team lead has to do is protect their team from that kind of stuff. And with, with that, so with that leader, you, sort of protecting that team and the you mentioned like they they need to have an understanding of of data science and the way that it it works but they don't necessarily need to be a data scientist is that is that fair yeah i i think that's fair as long as they understand in a deep sense what i was just describing mm -hmm. What kind mm. of project, you know, it, it, so if I'm running, if I'm running the predictive modeling team, like for instance, uh, a one, there's one uh, executive at a client company that I'm, that I'm picturing in my mind now that was really great at this. He was clearly on an executive track. He was the kind, you know, he was the kind of guy that was running a medium sized team, you know, uh, by late, you know, thirties, early forties. So he's the kind of person yep. that you would picture that would be headed towards VP, right? You know, in a military sense, you know, he's, you know, he's on a, he's on an officer track. He's not going to be building models his whole career, as opposed to yeah. what uh, recruiters like to call an individual contributor who really yeah. does want to build models their whole career. So those are very different tracks. So he started yeah. out running the BI team. Then he moved on to running the data science team. 
but he was a quick study and he knew that this was different. So I, I got to know him because he brought me in as an external resource. And what he would do is every time a new project was proposed, he would want me in the room to kind of mentor him about scoping the project and, you know, the contracts and stuff. He would be physically present during these scoping meetings. And I always thought this was incredibly clever of him. He would bring two of his modelers, not just one, because it's only mm. a 30 minute or a 60 minute meeting. And what was brilliant about what he did was he could then ask them after the meeting, say, OK, guys, which one of you wants it? And rather than just taking one and assuming that it was a good fit for them. And sure enough, there would always be some comment like, oh, yeah, this this actually reminds me of my master's thesis or something. You know, there would be something that he didn't know about them that made it perfect that they do one of yeah. these projects. And quite often the other one would be like, oh, I'm relieved because that, that one didn't sound too interesting to me. You know, that was really brilliant. So we would go in and, you know, I, I must have been in 12 or 15 meetings with the guy and I must have supported like six of those. Uh, those projects. And then mm. uh, I ran into him a couple of years after that, and he was running both the BI and data science teams. In other words, he had been promoted to his boss's role. So yes, he he's not going to be somebody building models all the time, but that career path was kind of perfect for him. And I think would really be kind of a paradigm example of how to do it. Yeah, it's also a great approach to prevent the it's not an ml it's a bi thing you have the two machine learning guys standing in front of you and tell okay which one of you wants to take this and both of them are like nah not really it's a bit of a red flag that that's yeah. probably not, not a good <laughs> good project for the team then that's a, that's a that's a great that's a great point yeah that's a great point yeah i have a i have a i have a fun example of one of those that really belonged to the bi team kind of a one uh it was with a manufacturer and they were trying to figure out um if something was going to arrive late so it was typically since they were a manufacturer they weren't shipping the actual product because it, it was heavy equipment so you know you, you mm. send that through fedex but what you were sending through fedex sometimes were things like replacement parts so they were trying to build a model find out when something might show up late because if there was warranty or insurance involved and this expensive piece of equipment was going to be down per day, there would be liability either on the manufacturer's side or on their client side. You know, something bad was going to happen if this repair part didn't show up on time. So we sat down for about 20 or 30 minutes. And um, my clients will tell you my two favorite questions to ask is, what's the row and what are we trying to predict? So by row, I'm saying, you know, are we trying to make a prediction about this kind of equipment, this particular piece of equipment? You know, at what level are we trying to make the prediction? So another example would be like, you know, are we trying to predict about a person or a household? You know, that, that kind of a thing. So I always want to know that. And I wanted to know what would be predicted. And within 20 or 30 minutes, it was pretty clear that the reason that things shipped late is that they were out of stock. But they didn't have good internal, you know, if if the if the if the rep on the warranty side wanted to check stock levels, it was not easy for them to do so. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's why they thought they wanted to predict when the product would leave. There was no prediction to take place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What they needed to do was they needed to kind of clean up things on the BI front, you know, if that makes sense. So that translator would have to be skilled enough. I mean, again, this is not rocket science at this level. They have to be able to 
ferret out what the real problem is and say, wow, if the reason that we're shipping late is because it's out of stock. Do we really need a neural net? <laughs> no. <laughs> it sounds funny. Yeah. It sounds funny, yeah. but this is a real conversation with a real client. Yeah. I think it's also very important for the leader to have good domain knowledge of the, the, the thing they're doing, what the organization is doing. Because if you want to make these kinds of decisions, you need to know more than just the algebra. Yes. Ab absolutely. Absolutely. Anyway. So, yeah, um, yeah, so picking up on that, because that, that kind of brings us to kind of, it's almost like we're listing skill sets. And, and the best way to describe the team is that the team collectively has to have all these skill sets, right? So we've talked about, we've talked about the translator part. So yeah. one mistake I think organizations make is they either don't emphasize the subject matter expertise enough or they emphasize it too much. Let me explain, right? So an example of an organization that's not emphasizing the subject matter expertise enough is they recruit a brand new team all from the outside. So no internal transfers, no internal promotions, everybody from the outside. And what would motivate them to do it? Because they want the best Python programmers in the world. In other words, they're looking for a half dozen unicorns or whatever it is, you know, mm. that the, the, the infamous crazy job description that nobody can meet right so they have this checklist that's almost impossible to um, to achieve so they end up hiring people from the outside and now you've got a data science team with no domain knowledge and that's nuts okay the alternative is is assuming that subject matter expertise alone is going to build the model then you're missing the uh, craft like the artisan who builds the shoes, right? You need you need both. Mm, yeah. So sometimes it can actually be helpful to have the team lead be an external hire, possibly even from another industry, so that you get uh, if it's a brand new team. Sometimes I think this can work quite well. You bring in somebody that's been in three or four different industries. They built a lot of different models in a lot of different places. If this is when that works if the members of the team are interested in the subject so they they're going to embrace being mentored by this external resource but they provide the subject matter expertise one way or another either through the leader or through the members um, you have to get the subject matter expertise but if you have no one has it or everybody has it either of those can be a problem yeah. yeah, talking about that acceptance, because basically that's it, right? The, the, the group has to accept the leader if it comes from external. Uh, what I've also, I think I saw this, is when the organization hires the unicorn, the, the, the machine learning expert unicorn, and adds that person to a team. How do you prevent that machine learning expert to be a poison pill? Because on the one hand, you're actually telling that team, you guys are not smart enough. We had to get intelligence from outside. So you will get some anti, some aggression, passive-aggressive passive behavior happening, perhaps. The data scientist himself will feel threatened. Uh, he'll try to prove himself. How do you avoid that kind of negative uh, dynamic happening? Well, there's two, there's two scenarios that can be really uncomfortable. You've definitely identified one which is the, you know, the unicorn comes in just kind of cold and there's an existing team, but maybe two or three members of the team had actually wanted that promotion, yeah, even worse. you know, got shot down. That, that can definitely be uncomfortable. The other one that's maybe even worse is when you hire the unicorn and there is no team yet. So you hire the unicorn and they've been given a headcount of five, but like on paper, you know, it does, 
the team doesn't exist yet. And now three months into the job, they're so busy with HR issues and interviewing and everything that they have no time to be productive on the actual work of the team. And then at the six month mark, they're already being asked, you know, what have you done for me lately? Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? That's, that's super, super <laughs> uncomfortable. So those are both pretty bad. Uh, so so my, my solution to both of those is, is possibly somewhat self-serving since I've been an external resource most of my career, right? So, so if you were to talk to someone that has been with the same big company for 10 years or 15 years and work their way up the organizational chart, they might give you a different answer than me. But I found that the best way to address both of those scenarios is bring in an external resource to help run a project, okay? Preferably, you know, keep them external, you know, uh, because you can do projects like this quite successfully in let's say six months. I've had some that take eight or 10, fewer yeah. that take a year or so, a couple that maybe take three months, you know, but still this isn't something like, you know, it should be taken five years. So you bring in that person. And then what you do is you go out of your way to get, a number of internal folks involved, even at the risk of letting the team get a little bit bigger than it otherwise would, because, because you're purposefully trying to attract a number of part-time roles. And the reason that this is attractive is it's like this big tryout, you know? You're taking, you know, folks with IT, BI backgrounds, a whole variety of different backgrounds, and they're each contributing, let's say, a couple of days a week towards the project. Mm -hmm. So one could be in the data steward role. You know, that's the, that's the person who's sitting down with the modeler and having a conversation about the kind of data that's necessary. And if the modeler is an external resource, they need someone that knows that data extremely, extremely well. But ideally, it's also someone that wants to kind of, you know, through osmosis, be picking up a little bit on what the modeler is doing. You know, it's not just issuing requests and honoring those requests. It should be a dialogue between the modeler and the, and the data steward. Um, and there's numerous other roles that you can do that way. If that's the case, then when the project succeeds, uh, right, because you brought in something that somebody experienced, so, so hopefully you have this, you know, really great outcome, you've accomplished so many things. You have a sense of what needs are being met well internally. So now you've reduced the number of skills that you have to supplement from the outside. And then you have a little bit of a cohesion in the team already. And then, then you can start looking for your team lead, but you're not bringing that team lead into a vacuum or bringing that team lead into coming on the heels of one successful project. But if that new team lead is, is experienced as the external resource that was used on the first project, the team knows that they're not ready, right? They know that they're going into their second project and that they really want somebody that's done four or five. So I think it addresses both bad scenarios. Yeah. I'm just gonna put my sarcasm hat on again and say, but hey, I've got this problem that needs to be fixed next week. I don't have six months or a year to do all this. No. <laughs> Well, then they use the word I used earlier, then, then it's hopeless. Yeah. <laughs> if, if they want to snap their fingers and everybody's happy, then it's not going to happen. Right. Yeah. So again, but, I'm, I'm, I'm glad I'm fortunate that at this point in my career, you know, I'm early 50s. So I've got, I've got a number of years left, but I'm far enough along in my career. They say, oh, Keith doing one project and then creating the team. We don't, we're not into that idea. Um, then maybe they're maybe they're not the right 
client for me, right? I would basically say, you know what, you know, what's the alternative? And, and if it's throw a lot of, you know, tell HR that um, funds are unlimited and we, you know, we want to hire like our five people, none of the five people know each other. None of the five people have ever worked for the company before. So therefore none of the people know the data that's in the data warehouse. There's just, mm -hmm. there's just no way that's going to work. So, <laughs> so again, as somebody starting out, uh, maybe they would, uh, hope for the best and say, okay, you know, I need the gig. I'm going to do that. But mm. that's a recipe for disaster. So at this stage, I would, I would gently coach them that that's not a good idea. And, uh, yeah. uh, and okay. if they really wanted to proceed with that uh, crazy plan, then uh, it's not going to, I'm not going to be the right person. <laughs> I'm not going to be the right person to mentor them through that, uh, that journey. Yeah, but it's a bit of a risk, right? With the whole hype cycle going on, everything needs to be AI washed. It's like the quick, the quick fix. And nothing is quick fixes don't exist. If it's too good to be true, it ain't true. Yeah. So we've we've talked a bit about like what makes teams effective. We've touched a little bit about sort of hiring and, and the way to, to grow teams, but like at the not quite the other end of the spectrum, but sort of the there's the other related point is just retaining good people. Like the 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 sort of the data science space is so incredibly hot. You you mentioned earlier about um, you know based on you know some of the the conversations and the contacts that you have with people in this space, you know uh, sort of churning churning through you know places you know maybe every year. How how does an organisation retain a good team and continue to, to build and develop that group without um, too much, uh, uh, you know, challenges around retention. Well, you know, it's, uh, it's similar what the issue that you were raising earlier that, you know, just simply recognizing the fact that this is, um, you know, this is a hot mar market. So, um, uh, when I, um, when I'm chatting with colleagues and, and we admit to each other that there's a fair number of prima donnas and data science, people usually kind of chuckle because they just kind of recognize that to be, uh, to be true. But um, so I think the trick is that because, you know, if if you if you hire someone that's, um, you know, that, that's really trying to like show off or something like that, they are going to be the kind of person that's only going to stick around uh, for about a year or so. So obviously you try to address that at hiring. So the number one thing that I want to know is how comfortable are they with uncertainty, you know, because I mentioned that the team should be focused on projects where you're trying to predict or estimate something. Mm -hmm. If you're simply assembling facts, that's incredibly valuable. That's a huge part of what, um, you know, the, the, the data teams more broadly have to do within the organization, right? But if it's, it's but if the project is about assembling facts, then it's not going to be the right fit. So at hiring, I want to make sure that uh, I, I love asking, for instance, what was the time that the data seemed to be telling you one thing, but it turned out to be indicating something else? You know, mm. if, if they don't have if they don't have one anecdote, uh, you know, I could I have hundreds probably at the stage, you know, but if they don't have a really good anecdote around that, they're probably not a good fit. And that's that's I'm going to care much more about that than whether or not, um, you know, they can pass a coding exam for me. So if I'm ensuring that they're comfortable with uncertainty at higher. And I'm trying to screen out the prima donnas out there, and there, you know, there are some. 
But then in to reward them for the fact that they've achieved this skill, uh, being able to predict or estimate in an environment of uncertainty, then I want to make sure that I'm directing projects on that to them, you know, and keeping them and keeping them engaged and, you know, honoring the fact that professional development is endless in this business. So I know myself four to six weeks a year seems like a crazy number, you know, but four to six weeks a year, I'm learning, you know, something new. So Mm -hmm. uh, I'm fortunate in that part of my career is speaking at conferences and so on. So if I'm, if I'm speaking on a Monday morning, a lot of my colleagues have to, you know, fly home maybe the, the night after they've spoken, but I try to stay the whole week because most conferences will allow me to poke around and sit in on other sessions. And I do that as much as a month or more than a month a year. So if I'm running a team, I'm finding a way to give them time for that professional development, because I think that's a really key reason why some people leave is, you know, you could get somebody that's super fired up about deep learning, you know? Now, I, if, if, they wanted, if they want to apply deep learning on every single project, I'm not going to hire them, right? Because they, they shouldn't be this whole hammer and nail kind of personality, mm-hmm. yep. you know, yep. everything, uh, everything's a nail. So that, that's not going to, that's not going to fly with me, but if they have a particular passion, um, of course you try to align the projects as best you can. Right. But for the most part, they should be content with the, I'm um, predicting something or estimating something because you never know what projects the business is going to have. But if you keep the assembling facts type stuff as important as it is, you know, the more of the present tense stuff, right? The predictive analytics team should be focused on the future. And uh, the BI and dashboarding teams are more about what's going on in the present tense. And they're both important. But when you develop that skill set, they want to they want to be on projects that excite them. Yep. Yeah. And I think that the 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 sort of when we come to retention, it almost doesn't matter which which area you're talking about. If you're if you're not working on something that interests and excites you in some way, shape or form for the majority of people in this kind of space, like they, they will, they will move on. So always trying to, uh, you know, tailor, you know, share around the boring stuff, um, but also reward and, and tailor folks, um, tailor the opportunities that people have to, you know, ride their particular hobby horse on certain areas and certain projects is is always going to be important. Is always going to be a part of of retaining good folks. There's another huge one, and I would be remiss if mm. I didn't uh, raise this issue. It's a really huge topic. Uh, well, it's not a lengthy, complicated topic. It's just something we've got to remember. It's hugely important, in other words, uh, and that is. Um, there has to be a career path that allows someone to be an individual contributor because in so many, in so many careers, the way you get promoted is you go from being the individual on the team to running the team, right? Well, you don't want to lose that 10 year veteran of the data science team because they feel that the only way that they can get recognition or a raise is to leave the company to be somebody else's lead. Okay. You absolutely positively have to give them a career path that does not require that they run a team because some of them will be quite glad to run a team, but many of them want to grow in their expertise, Mm -hmm. but continue to be individual contributors. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And this is another area in, 
in, yeah, in so many areas of, of the tech world where building, it, it sounds really simple because it's something that's been on the majority of people's minds for a very long time. But having a career path for individual contributors and have that as a, a parallel career path with management, like there is not one of these things is not more important mm. than the other. And in fact, you can be a leader as an IC. Like there's not a there's not a moratorium on the impact you can have in an organization um, because you're an individual contributor. You can have just as much say in the direction of the company, assuming these things are done well and done properly, as an IC as you can as a manager. Like the the number of times that people get confused about the fact that oh I don't I don't even like the idea of managing people but I, I that's the only place I can see that my career will go and unfortunately I've met a great many technical folks that have ended up being great managers I've also met you know a number of folks who have made terrible managers and like it's not it's not their fault it's not their you know it, it's just something that they they weren't you know that they weren't wired to to do and they weren't um you know effective at doing that and and but they felt the the pressure and the need for their continued development to go down that route and it's it's one of the areas i think in not just in the tech space i think it's everywhere but i think it's particularly prevalent in the tech because we put so much time and effort building like strong individual contributors and then you know, if they don't have a route to go, you end up with a, a average at best, maybe you know below average at worst, um, manager that that actually ends up doing more harm than good. Yeah, ab absolutely. So I don't think it's unreasonable to ask someone with ten years of experience to run a project, and they're going to be totally glad to do that. The problem mm. is exactly what you describe: is that they feel like they have no path. They have no choice but to apply for a management job that they don't want, but they feel it's the only way to get that promotion. Yeah. So um, I don't look the part with my long hair and beard, but I was um, I was in the army in my twenties because I was on an army scholarship in, in school, and um, I think the army has an interesting solution to this. They have they have a uh, a rank called a warrant officer, and it tends to be specialized technical areas, you know, like. Uh, Mm. helicopter repair and stuff like that but folks can earn uh a substantial you know income a uh, a warrant officer um the highest rank of a warrant officer is roughly the equivalent of a colonel you know a colonel okay. would be in charge of like a thousand people you know yeah. so to think that you might only manage six or eight people but because you're a technical specialist and because you don't want to be promoted into running increasingly large teams there is a mm. path available to that person. And if you make the two paths available, the management path, as well as the individual contributor path, but with appropriate recognition and promotion and raise opportunities, they'll choose the right path. They, they won't feel forced down just one. Yep, absolutely, absolutely. Right, so we are, we are running up towards the end here, but yeah. one of the things that we want to do is to have a, a nod towards, although you're a, 
a consultant in this space, you've put together quite a, a diverse range of training material around this kind of space, all on sort of the, the LinkedIn learning platform. So, uh, I mean, yeah, how, how, did you, how did you start this, this little interesting escapade? Well, you know, it's, uh, it's uh, LinkedIn learning in general, I just think is really interesting how they approach things because there are so many places where there's really kind of a marketplace of ideas, YouTube, yeah. Udemy, all these other places. What makes LinkedIn learning a little bit different, as valuable as all those other platforms are, is that it's heavily, heavily curated. So um, I work with an acquisitions editor that's not unlike when I work with my acquisitions editor at Wiley. You know, I've written some technical mm. books too. Uh, so what they're doing is they're trying to assemble a library and when there's a topic that they think needs more attention, they, re they reach out and try to find experts and kind of recruit you to contribute. Not unlike a publisher might when they think there's a particular topic that's, uh, um, you know, that's missing. Um, in their, you know, in their series or what have you. So that but that was really great. So uh, it was through word of mouth that they approached me, but I, I think it was my technical writing that got their attention. A lot of the acquisitions editors come from the public, public uh, publishing side. And then you talk yeah. about uh, what you bring to the table and what the library needs. So I've done 13 of these now. I, I, I was approached wow. in 2016 and my first came out in 2017. I've continued to do them because it's just so incredibly rewarding. The content is amazing. Um, I'm humbled by the other authors on the platform. They're all just absolutely brilliant. And the amount of pre-production and post-production that's involved is unbelievable. Sometimes bordering almost on like a TV show. Wow. Okay. Incredible. I mean, the, we've certainly, Jan's been uh, cycling through a, a few of the courses. Uh, I would absolutely recommend if, uh, if any of you have, have learned something interesting on this or uh, some of these uh, topics have, have piqued your interest, um, you know, go ahead and take a look at the, uh, the LinkedIn learning site. We'll put a uh, couple of links in the show notes that mm -hmm. take you directly to uh, some of Keith's sessions. And, uh, One more thing that I should been... mention, yeah, um, because uh, I can't tell you the number of times that this has come up in, with conversation in uh, conversation with somebody. They've gone, "Wow, LinkedIn Learning! I haven't haven't heard of that." And then I'll, I'll explain to them that if they have a premium LinkedIn account, which many people do, mm -hmm. either because they're trying to look for new hires or they're looking for a position themselves, um, virtually everybody with any kind of premium LinkedIn account gets access to this stuff for free. Yeah. So there might be countless people who are hearing this right now that had no idea that all this free content was there. Um, you know, it is, a, it is behind a firewall, but many, many, many people get it for free as long as they have one of these LinkedIn accounts. Yeah, and from my end, I can say I've, I was premium for a long time. I didn't even realize this until my current employer decided everybody should get access to LinkedIn uh, learning. So we got it all, and then I figured out, oh, but I already had it. <laughs> so yeah, totally right. A lot of people yeah. don't know. That's exactly right. That's Fantastic. what I hear all the time. So I would, I'd encourage people just to click on when they're logged into LinkedIn. Just click on the little play button, just like on a, you know, their uh, uh, their music player or DVD or whatever, and. Uh, 
that little symbol takes you to the content. And a lot of times they'll discover exactly what you just uh, said, Jan, and that, mm -hmm. that it's free for them because their employer, their university, or just their own account uh, makes it free. Fantastic. Well, um, I think with that, uh, unless there's any anything else that uh, you'd like to mention as sort of final points around this, Keith? No, I, I really enjoyed it. I'm glad that we were able to tackle uh, both, uh, you know, both ends of the, the spectrum there, the uh, what makes for a successful project and what makes for a successful team. I think it was a good uh, two topic approach. Yeah. yeah, I liked it very much myself. So thank you very much for being here. Yeah, thank really you. appreciate the time, Keith. And uh, who knows, maybe we'll be able to uh, collaborate again. I would enjoy that very much. All right. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Keith. Well, that rounds up our two-part series with uh, Keith running through effective machine learning and all the team and organizational stuff that uh, comes with it to make it uh, really engaging and useful. Really good session. Um, as we said uh, during the, the session itself, um, there's a LinkedIn learning set of material that Keith's been putting together for quite some time really professional sort of uh, material there and if you've got any form of premium linkedin subscription apparently it's all free to access so there you go yep i think uh, effective ml is definitely something people should be interested in because there's a lot of money being spent on machine learning and not all of it is as effective as it could be let's say that <laughs> indeed indeed well I think that is probably about all we've got, unless there's anything else from you. Nope, I'm all machine learned out for today. All right. In that case, then that is all the time we have for today. You can support this podcast by becoming a Patreon. Every contribution helps. We're on YouTube. You can like, you can subscribe, you can hit the notification bell, you can comment. So many options. Please go to www.roaringelephant.org for a link to our Patreon page. And for more information about the podcast, you can also follow us on Twitter using the at Roaring Elephant tag and you send, off, send your feedback to podcast at roaringelephant.org. Until next time, my name is still not very well trained, Dave. And my name is totally ready for inferencing. <laughs> and we look forward to talking to you next week. Goodbye. See you then. We need to start working on our puns at the end, I think. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they're terrible, and it's fine.